Okay, we're going to jump right into the message today. I just want to tell you, this has been quite the week this week. Uh, I finished the message on Sunday, and I was like, man, my jaw is sore, and, and it just is, is irritated, and I didn't really know what that was all about. Well, in the night when I woke up, it was like full-blown infection, not good, into the emergency dental, first thing in the morning, impacted wisdom tooth, infected, pulled on Monday morning, then in a drain installed, and in fact, it was awful. Okay, it was not fun, not pleasant, and so this message today should be excellent. Um, I wrote most of it from home with the help of my uh, eight-year-old and five-year-old because uh, they love to be apart. So uh, it was an interesting week. Yesterday, I got the drain out. So if you see me drooling up here, just no, we'll be all right. So today we're continuing in the life of David. I'm just going to be transparent with you right off the bat. Today's message is a little hard message. It's, it's a little heavy message. It's a little different than my typical approach and how I do things. And so before we jump into the text today, could you just join with me and we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us today. So God, we are here because we desire to know you better and we desire to know your will for our life. And so I ask that the Holy Spirit would come and help us as we look into the Word to reveal your heart and your desire for our lives and to train us with your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27 is where we're going to start, and I'm just going to jump in. It begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. So David, the king of Israel, is not leading his people into battle. David the warrior, David the warrior king, David the general has become David the comfortable, okay? And he's in his palace now, and he's married a bunch of wives and concubines, and he does no longer feel like going out to battle. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Not just beautiful, very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I love Hebrew names. I love Hebrew names and their meanings. I looked up all three of these names this week. Bathsheba means daughter of the oath or daughter of the promise. Her husband Uriah's name means my light is Yahweh, and her dad Elam means God is my nation, or God is the God of our people. Verse 4, then David sent a messenger to get her. In Hebrew, it literally means to take her. He sent a messenger to take her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab his army commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite, that's her husband, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, now go down to your house and wash your feet. So David is super friendly. He's super casual. He, he engages in some small talk with Uriah, but says, hey, you've been traveling. You've been at war. I know what you really want to do. You want to go home. You want to have your feet washed. You want to get the, the road soil off of you. And he's using a euphemism here that means you want to go home and see your wife and lay with your wife. 
And David figures that's exactly what Uriah will do. And then what will happen is he'll sleep with her and everyone will just assume that when he came home to visit David to find out about how the war was going, that when he laid with his wife Bathsheba, they got pregnant and then he'd go back to battle and nobody would know any better. There's a problem. Goes on. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. Undoubtedly, David sent a gift basket with some wine and some Hebrew aphrodisiacs, right? But, it says, verse 9, Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Haven't you been on the road for a while? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark, of Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and the king's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such thing. See, Uriah turns out to be quite a noble and quite a loyal person. It turns out that David has set a trap for Uriah, but a trap that would have worked on David, because we see that this is a real problem for David and not on Uriah. So, He's got another ace up his sleeve. He's got another thing to try. When all else fails, verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. So David knows drunk men tend to lose their nobility. So he's got an ace up his sleeve. If he's unwilling to do it sober, let's see what he does when he's drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Send him to the hottest part of the battle. Send him to the, the place where he's surely to be killed and then pull everyone else away. Strand him, leave him alone and let him be killed. And so Joab did what he had been ordered to do. Verse 18, then Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? And if he asks you this, then say to him, <clears throat> moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. So let me translate for you what's happening. Joab knew that the orders that he had given to his men were boneheaded military orders. He knew that if David heard the account of what took place on the battlefield, he would blame Joab for this terrible, terrible leadership in battle. So he reminds the guy, hey, and tell him, wink, wink, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And he'll know that I did this on purpose. He'll know that I did this to have Uriah killed. But one thing you need to understand here, friends, is it looks like Uriah is not the only one who was killed by these actions. Verse 22 says, And the messenger told David everything Joab had sent him to say. He said, And some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. 
Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. Now, everyone, my guess is, probably assumes that this is a noble act on David's part. Here, a recently widowed, pregnant woman, or they don't know she's pregnant, but a recently widowed woman has just lost her husband in battle, and now King David comes in and he marries her, a fallen soldier. She'll be taken care of. What a wonderful thing to do. But we read this verse in the end of Samuel 11, and it's really a shocking verse, and I want you to really let it sink in. It says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I want that to really sink in because remember, this is David, the man after God's own heart, the long-anticipated king of Israel, David, the giant slayer, David, the sweet shepherd boy, the one who authored so many of the Psalms, the one who led his people into worship, the one who last week we saw brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city and there was dancing and there was praise. David, the one who wrote Psalm 119 most likely, who just talks about his love for the Word of God. David, that very same David, a man who up until this point we've known as a man of integrity, a man of worship has now had his captain's wife, uh, he now has slept with his captain's wife, had his captain murdered to cover it up. In one moment, David has broken like half of the Ten Commandments. And in 2 Samuel 23, we find out Uriah wasn't actually just any soldier. This makes it even more painful to, to know this. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. He's one of the elite 37 fighters who were David's personal closest guards. They're like the Navy SEAL team of their day. Their military exploits were famous. They had come to David and assembled around David during his time in uh, the wilderness while he was on the run. These were people that, were, that led, literally bled for him and fought for him and died alongside of David to protect David so that he could become the king. And we find out Uriah is not only just a soldier, but he's one of David's closest soldiers. Not only did David steal his wife, he has him murdered. And not just him. When Joab orders the army to pull back, you find out that a squadron, a whole group of soldiers that are there fighting with Uriah are killed. So how do we get to this place? How do we get here? Because I think this is important for us. Because I want to talk about some difficult things today. And I just want to ask this question, how did David get here? How did he get to this place where now he's had someone murdered, where now he's committed adultery? How did he end up in this spot? And here's the first thing, and this is, if you're taking notes today, one thing we've got to be aware of. Number one is this, David was disengaged from the battle. David was disengaged from the battle. It says, in the time when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. See, David had become idle. David had disengaged. Idleness isn't, friends, listen, idleness isn't just the absence of activity. All of us need times in our life and in our schedule where we are slowing down and resting, 
But there's a difference between idleness and rest. See, idleness is unto no purpose. There's a purpose behind rest. Idleness is purposeless. And so here's what happens. When David finishes that nap that day, what should he have done next? Well, for one, he shouldn't have been there. He should have been with his men in battle. But now he did stay behind. So now he wakes up from the nap and he's still alone. And so, actually, I found this quote this week that I thought was so good, and maybe this will help you. Um, Samuel Johnson, a famous writer, poet, and theologian, he said this, if you're idle, don't be solitary. And if you're solitary, don't be idle. What he meant is, if you're idle, meaning you've got nothing happen, don't be alone. And if you are alone, don't be idle. Make sure you keep yourself busy. And if David would have followed this counsel, he would have saved himself and his family a great deal of heartache. See, David isn't leading God's people into battle. He sent a proxy in his name to do that. At the time when kings were supposed to be at war, David stayed home. He made a bad decision. He was disengaged from the battle. And when we disengage from the purpose, from the battle... From God's calling on our life, we set ourselves up for a trap. We set ourselves up for temptation. In fact, the greatest way that you and I can avoid temptation, according to the New Testament, Galatians 5.16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you stay engaged, if you stay active, if you stay working and walking in God's purpose, we can avoid some of these foolish mistakes. If David would have put his attention where God wanted it, he wouldn't have been in the place when this trap was being set. And I want you to understand this, what's happening here spiritually. David's army is laying siege to a city. But at the same time that they are laying siege to the city, the devil's actually laying siege to David. The devil has set this moment up. He has this trap ready and loaded. The most beautiful girl that you can imagine is there. She's bathing. She's on a roof in plain eyesight. David wakes. He goes to the roof. He sees her. He has the trap baited, and he has the trap set. And because David is in the wrong place from where God would have had him, he ends up being susceptible to this trap. Here's the second thing. Number two. David put himself into a place where he could be tempted. David put himself into a place where he could be tempted. So, when he went out on this roof that night, I just want you to, we weren't even going to deal with, I I will quickly, because we need to. David had a bunch of wives and a bunch of concubines, and people often say, hey, was that good? Was that God's plan for David? No. We actually know from the book of Deuteronomy that before God spoke to Moses and said, hey, someday there's going to be kings in Israel, and they're going to want to take on a bunch of wives like everyone else does, but they shouldn't do that. Don't store for yourself up wives, okay? And here David has avoided, uh, ignored that command. He's ignored that command. He's taken in all these wives. Well, David, if he was feeling lonely, he had a whole bunch of concubines. He had a whole bunch of wives. You can say what you want about it, but that's the reality of David. But still, he goes up onto the roof. This is like you going to uh, that internet browser when you are at home alone late at night. 
He puts himself in a place where once he maybe even accidentally noticed Bathsheba. Maybe it was totally innocent. He just looked and saw her. But the Bible says it didn't stop there. He looked and then he gazed. The temptation caught his attention and then he gazed. He stopped. He lingered. And those feelings began to overpower him. You see, this is the way that it works often, friends, with sexual sin. Sexual sin usually doesn't overtake you all at once. The temptation will actually come on gradually, and you, you just slowly get led deeper and deeper off track and into it. And maybe it ends up like this. And believe me, friends, I've heard these stories far too many times. It starts off with just after work. It's just that friend that understands what life is like at work. So maybe it's just that person that you just feel like you can decompress with. You can talk about how things really are. You can really, they understand you. Maybe then you go on a business trip and it's that person that you eat with or you drink with. Maybe it's that person that you're sending text messages to or private messages to because you have inside jokes with each other or you think certain things are funny and so you're constantly sending each other and communicating in private. Maybe you're actually ensuring that you bump into each other, that you show up at the same places at the same time. And see, what happens in, in those moments, we usually will justify this. We'll say, you just don't understand my situation. You don't understand my circumstances. They understand me. They get me. I'm in a bad marriage. My marriage isn't fulfilling me, and this person knows me in a different kind of way. And what's happened, friends, is you put yourself in a place to be tempted. I want you to write this down because it's a life point that I think is important for us. It is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. Listen to this. It's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. Now, I'm a child of the 80s, and much of what I've learned in life came from Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. And in the Karate Kid 2, one of the great lessons Mr. Miyagi teaches Daniel is he says, it's the best way to avoid a punch is to not be there. The best way to avoid a punch is to not be there. What he's saying is the best way to stay out of a fight is not put yourself into a place where a fight is likely to happen because it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it like this, if your head is made out of butter... Stay away from the fire. Process that for a minute. If your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. See, what this means is, friends, as believers, that we are going to have to make decisions that our world looks at and doesn't understand, maybe even ridicules. But you need to understand the stakes are just too high. See, many people today mock the idea that a married man and a married woman who are not married to each other would refuse to spend intimate alone time with each other. They think, what are you, old-fashioned? What what's wrong with you? We're just colleagues. You're right. You may be colleagues. And I pray that we as colleagues can come to a place where we're not just looking at our colleagues as potential sex objects, right? That's not right either. But I also understand that listen, friends, and this is an important thing. My mom and dad have taught me this. Before you tear down a wall, you better understand why that wall was built in the first place. And this is one of those things, friends, I believe we men and women of Christ can respect each other, 
can love each other, can hold legitimate friendships with each other, and still recognize that we should not put ourselves in situations where we are likely to be tempted. I think both can be true at the same time. That we would be smart about the time we spend together and we wouldn't go on the rooftop together. For some of you, it means that you're going to need to find accountability for some of your relationships. For some of you, it means that your internet life really needs to find accountability. And if you need a program like Covenant Eyes or some other kind of software, friends, if you are sending text messages with somebody that your spouse doesn't know about, these are terrible traps. My wife and I have the passwords to each other's, all of our devices. That's not because we don't trust each other. Our phones, we do not view as private. It's shared. Why? It's not because we don't trust each other. It's because we don't want something to produce a trap for us that ends up like Russian roulette, causing us to harm our family or our church or our own testimony. We take this seriously. So we don't have secrets. We don't keep our devices separate from each other. Friends, I can tell you this is a huge red flag for me. If someone has a phone that is off limits for everyone else to look at and see, I can probably tell you what's going on in that person's life. And I just want to tell you this is dangerous, this is dangerous, this is dangerous. Here's number three. David objectified Bathsheba. David objectified Bathsheba. He did not view her as a person. He viewed her as an object for his pleasure. In fact, the author points this out to us in such a wonderful way. In verse 3, David sends someone to find out about her. When they come back, the servant comes back, here's their response. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, why did the author record it like this? He is reminding us that Bathsheba, a very beautiful woman, is not just a very beautiful woman, but she's someone's daughter, and she's someone's wife, and maybe even someone's mother. See, this is a person who is loved and who loves other people, and not just for her physical beauty, not just for her body. She is loved, and she is cared for, and she belongs to a family. But David pays no attention to any of that, because to him, she's just an object to satisfy his lust. And can I tell you many of mankind's very worst sins? Let me make that more personal. Many of my very worst sins begin when we dehumanize someone else. You know, friends, just consider this. When you hear about the Nazi crimes or about the American slave trade or about our own country's killing of the unborn, we think, how could actual civilized people do things like this? Well, I'll tell you how. It usually starts with a campaign to dehumanize people, to turn them into an object that can be possessed, an object that can be thrown out, an object that can be controlled. And sexual sin does the same thing in us too. We forget we're dealing with someone's actual life. And not just one someone, a whole sphere of people's lives. This person, Bathsheba, was a daughter. She was a wife. She belonged to, she was a granddaughter. She belonged to a family. He wasn't just messing with her. He was messing with so much more than that. 
One of the books that I use when I'm working with guys who are struggling with temptation gives really practical counsel. This is what it says. When you're at the mall and you notice an attractive woman, look at her face and notice if she looks tired. If she's carrying packages, consider who she might be carrying them for and think, I bet she's a great mom. Make her a person. Give her a life. Ask yourself, I wonder if she knows Jesus. Pray for her. Give her a spirit will often dispel the temptation. We have to humanize these people. We can't just view them as objects. This is, in my opinion, the best way that you can keep yourself away from pornography is that by realizing the person on the other side of the screen or the other side of the camera or the other side of the image is a person created in the image of God, loved by God, and made for a purpose. That little girl or that little boy that's grown up had all kinds of dreams and promises and God had a dream for their life and now they've probably been sex trafficked. And somewhere along the way, something has happened, some pain, some hurt. And somewhere there's a family that loves that person still and is probably brokenhearted at what's taken place in their life. Friends, right now in our current culture, with the movie that's playing right now, there's a real awareness of this huge problem of human trafficking that's taking place. There's outrage amongst the Christian community about human trafficking, but can I tell you that if you want to see human trafficking stop, then you need to stop looking at pornography. That's what's fueling it. Don't miss this. David's sin begins with a version of pornography. David looked, he saw, and then he gazed. And that gaze led to objectification. And that objectification led him, David, a man after God's own heart, to be willing to break so many of the Ten Commandments that he loved and cherished. Friends, you need to hear me clearly. If you have pornography in your life for the sake of your family, for the sake of your relationships, you need to get rid of it today. Pornography is an only increasing problem in our country. And if you've not looked at the statistics, if you've wanted to remain kind of head in the sand about this, friends, it's shocking. One in five smartphone searches, one in five of every time somebody opens up their smartphone and types something into it is a search related to pornography. 46% of men and 16% of women uh, confess to consuming pornography on a weekly basis. Teens and young adults who were surveyed ranked not recycling as a higher immoral problem than viewing pornography. Pornography is associated with a 30% decrease in people's, uh, when they're surveyed of their relationship satisfaction. And in fact, your divorce rate doubles when there's pornography use in the marriage. If you are struggling with pornography, come and talk with us. We have a program called Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights. We have others. We have people who are walking through this right now, and you can find the help you need. Pornography is not harmless. It is not victimless, and it is and will destroy your life. So David, he's disengaged from the battle. And he's put himself into a place to be tempted. 
And now he's objectified Bathsheba. And here's the fourth one, and this is a nasty one. David abused his power. David abused his power. David was able to make this happen because why? He's the king. Verse 4, it says, he, he took her. Now, some have asked this question, and boy, did I get stuck down this rabbit hole. They asked the question about if Bathsheba was complicit in this. Was she on the roof because she wanted David to see her? Is that why she put herself there? All of this, was it rape or was it consensual? And let me just say, the Bible doesn't tell us, but here's what it does tell us. David was king, and he had the power to take her, and he had the power to demand of her whatever he wanted, and she had no power to resist him. And I can only imagine... When the messenger showed up at her door and said, come on, David wants to see you, what was going through her mind? In fact, we get a kind of a glimpse of this. Nathan, the prophet who shows up in the next chapter when God is going to, to speak judgment to David's life for this sin, David, uh, Nathan says that David was like a greedy thief who stole a helpless lamb from his neighbor's flock. See, what we can say for certain is that David sinned by using his power and an egregious abuse of his power. David used his position to take something that did not belong to him. And she would have been powerless to resist it. And I do not need to tell you, friends, in our society that we are constantly hearing stories of people who are leveraging their positions and their power in order to exploit other people. But you need to hear this loud and clear. God's people were and are supposed to be different than that. In God's kingdom, with power comes God's expectation of us to lay down our lives and to serve, not to take advantage of, not to take what belongs to us or what we can get, but to love and care for other people. That's what David was expected to do. He was the king. He was the father of his country. And instead of using that, that shepherd's heart, instead he was a thief who stole what wasn't his. And here's another life point that we really need to see here. Sexual sin destroys lives. Sexual sin destroys lives. See, David's sin destroyed Uriah, literally. It destroyed Uriah and Bathsheba's home. We're never told about the personal trauma that Bathsheba went through other than that she mourned. And how much might be tied up in that word? Her husband is killed. He's dead. Sent out to be killed in battle. I can imagine the, the rumors that were spreading. We know that several innocent people were murdered. Sexual sin destroys lives. Chapter 11 marks a turning point in David's life. Up until this point in David's life, he's been on a pretty vertical trajectory. He's gone from shepherd boy to giant killer to anointed, anointed king, giant killer. He's gone through his time in the wilderness. He's become king. They defeated the army at Jerusalem. They've carried the Ark of the Covenant in. It's an uphill trajectory. From this moment on, everything changes. In the next chapter, Nathan prophesies that because of this, the sword will never depart David's house. In, chapter, in 2 Samuel 13, one of David's sons is going to rape his half-sister and be murdered by his eldest. And then a couple chapters after that, Absalom, his eldest, is going to lead a rebellion against David's household. He's going to have a tent erected in the city 
and he is going to sleep with David's wives in public for the city to see it. His closest advisor is going to join the rebellion. And it turns out he's Bathsheba's grandpa. And he's going to fight against David and lead armies against David and lead to a war against David. Absalom, David's oldest, is going to be killed. This child born out of this sin is going to die. There's going to be death everywhere in David's household. And I have to ask you, friends, a difficult question. Is it possible to destroy your integrity and your family in just one evening? Yes. Yes. Because this is what's happened here, friends. Here in this incident, it's become a defining moment in David's life. His reputation is changed forever. I'll give you an example of this. Later on in Scripture, the chronicler who's writing about the life of the kings in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, when he mentions David, he can't just mention David. He has to mention this event. He says it like this. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. See, this is an important lesson for many of us. If you're walking in sexual sin right now, your sin does not just affect you, it affects everyone around you. Now, I'm not trying to drive some of you who have committed sexual sin to despair today. I want to be clear. In the next chapter, David is not only going to be forgiven, but God is going to create beauty even from these ashes. David, despite his great sin, unlike today, David doesn't get canceled. David is still the guy that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's going to be known as the son of David. David's psalms aren't going to be taken out of the Bible because of his sin. They're still there for us today. Many of Jesus' quotes in the New Testament are directly quoting David's psalms. Despite David's terrible sin, God didn't cancel David. He didn't revoke his sonship. He still had plans for him. He still did good in his life. But I need you to understand this. Even though David was completely forgiven, Sin still had a devastating effect on his life. And we say this a lot when it comes to our sin. You can be forgiven for sin, but you can't unsin. Meaning, the ripple effect of your sin, even though you've been cleansed by the blood, even though you're forgiven, even though he separated your sin as far as the east is from the west, even though he still calls you son, the ripple effect of your sin is still playing out in this world and in this life. It's why God wants us to walk away from this stuff, because it kills us, it harms us, it affects us so negatively. And David had become trapped, friends, trapped in this web. Band, you can come back up. And what happens next for David is David feels like he's gotten away with it. I don't know about you, but that's kind of the worst place you can be. To have committed a sin and feel like I outsmarted everybody. So God sends a prophet. Nathan shows up. And he's really clever in how he does all of this. He, he lets David be the judge. 
He lets David decide what the punishment should do. He tells him a story about a man. Now he knows what's near and dear to David's heart. He's a shepherd. So he tells him a story about a man who stole some sheep. David at the end says, even though the law doesn't say that someone who steals sheep should be put to death, David says, this is so egregious, he should be killed. And Nathan says, he's you. Now, when David is faced with this reality, and all of this stuff we've just talked about is going to come to pass in David's life, David is truly heartbroken and repentant. And what I'd like to do with you today is as we get ready to close this message, is I want to read for you David's response. David actually wrote down a psalm, Psalm 51. After, here's what it says, for the choir director, Psalm of David, regarding the time that Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this is David's confession. This is David's response. This is David crying out to the Lord and repenting. And he says this. And I just went, maybe you're here today. And maybe you're walking in sexual sin. Maybe you're willingly walking down that road. You're struggling with pornography. You're struggling with same-sex attraction. You're struggling with being in a relationship. You're committing uh, adultery. You've had things that are happening in your relationship. And I just want to encourage you to hear what David said in Psalm 51. And then we're going to respond here. This is what he said. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I'll teach your ways to the rebels, and they'll return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I'd offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject the broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will again be sacrificed on your altar.